0: Hello everybody. Welcome to the Farm and Garden Show. It is very nice to be here with you again. And I'm just so pleased to be back here in the studio uh, with another farm and garden show. I have two guests for our listening pleasure today. I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. I am joined by Paul Brumbaum and Matt Druno. Since 2007, Paul has been growing as much of his family's food as possible on a one-acre homestead on the Mendocino coast, Paul farms mostly with hand tools using biodynamic and biointensive methods and for the past several years has been working to minimize the use of off-farm inputs and maximize farm generated fertility. Welcome Paul. Thank you. And Matt Druno works with Ecology Action and runs the Victory Gardens for Peace Initiative, which includes a free community seed bank. He runs the Gardens Core program and the Garden-Friendly Community Resolution. Matt has a two-year-old daughter and finds great hope in working the soil. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I'm so happy to have you both. We are going to talk about what a good farm slash garden looks like in Mendocino in the year 2022 and beyond. It's an era of... Water scarcity, climate change. Those are both huge players when it comes to farming practices and food security. And I know you have both um, given a lot of thought to this and have started, you know, where you can put putting your, you know, theories to work on your own farms. And I'm really interested to learn about the evolution of you both as farmers. And, you know, I know you have some some practical and maybe philosophical advice for our listeners. Um, Paul, I want to start with you and sort of your background. You haven't been here forever, and I know you still divide your time a little bit between the Bay Area and Mendocino County. So can you just, you know, give us the Cliff Notes version of how you ended up on Navarro Ridge?
2: Sure. Yeah, not quite forever, but it started back in 1966 um, when I was just six years old and my folks bought some land on Navarro Ridge and built a cabin on it. That was right around the time the Beatles were singing savoy truffle i think it's a great song (laughs) (laughs) what a great song um so i grew up kind of in the milieu of the back to the land movement and you know earth day and all of that and i didn't actually start the garden here until 2007 and that was somewhat as a survival strategy um to hold on to my soul working in uh the corporate world and um, I would say it was kind of a combination of spiritual practice and also political action. Um, and I could go into that more. But basically, I feel that for me, gar- gardening and growing food is a kind of a way of reducing dependency on um, unjust structures and as well as eating really nutritious food.
0: So, absolutely. In a nutshell, growing uh, food is an act of revolution. Yes. Well, we're glad you found your way to Mendocino County. Um, Matt, you have a two-year-old. That's fun. I have a six-year-old. Um, brace yourself for the age of three. It's not the terrible twos, um, but, you know, it's all fun. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from? What brought you to Mendocino County? You do a ton of things. How do you juggle all of those things? Go.
1: Uh, what was the question? i no, just kidding. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> I am from Illinois originally and uh, made my way out West, like so many other people, Um, the old phrase, go West, young man. I went about as far as I could and hit the ocean and um, was out here in about 2005 and then had to go back to the Midwest to help some family and came back out as soon as I could. Um, I guess what, what brings me out here is just the, um, you know, Paul mentioned the Back to the Land movement uh, and experiencing that. And I've just kind of always longed for um, exploring new ideas of ways to do things, doing more with less community-oriented things. And um, I just find a supportive community for that out here. Uh, and it, it was always difficult for me to find that in Illinois. Um, so I love being out here. This is home now.
0: It's interesting when you say you had to go back to Illinois for a little bit in 2005. Did you farm while you were there?
1: Yeah, I started farming um, around 2000 at university and um, continued doing that. I was studying architecture and um, farming was also a survival strategy for me because I knew I was uh, <laughs> I loved architecture, but I knew I couldn't do it professionally. And I just fell in love with work in the soil. And, um, yeah, so it, it goes back. Um, to around that time.
0: but Were you also farming in Illinois when you took a break from Mendo?
1: I was. You yeah. were.
0: What would you say are the biggest differences between the farming you were doing there and the farming you do in Mendo?
1: Well, I think we're going to talk about water later on. We're um, going
0: to talk about water right now. Great segue. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, you know, we have good thunderstorms and nice rains, very humid, um, very warm in the in the summer and then a wonderful winter time, which I do miss. Where it's snowing and freezing, and the first couple months you just kind of hunker down and you, you know, just focus on internal and dreaming of what you're going to do in the spring. And then by February you're, you know, going out of your mind and you can't wait to, you know, get spring again. And um, so I do miss the seasons a little bit. Mm. Um, that's that's a big difference for sure.
0: Well, yes. Let's dive in. I mean, water scarcity is. One of the main themes of our conversation today, um, it's certainly situational to each farm. You know, a farmer in Potter Valley has different water issues than a farmer in the Ukiah Valley, a farmer in Anderson Valley, a farmer on the coast, etc. Um, farmers in Redwood Valley definitely struggle with water. But in sort of a global way, water scarcity, drought impacts us all already and will only continue to you know, be exacerbated in a, a warming earth with um and you know all of the effects of climate change that we're already seeing and we know are going to worsen. Um so even though you know water scarcity is somewhat situational it is also a global theme. Um what have you found to be uh, we're not going to debate whether or not water scarcity is a thing, right? Like we all agree that's a thing. If you're listening and you disagree, the science agrees climate change is real so that is settled science don't call and debate i will hang up on you Um, so now that we've got that out of the way what are some of the most effective methods you have found for farming in mendocino county with reduced water and that is a very broad question and we will sort of drill down into specifics as the hour goes on paul you want to start
2: well i'll i'll take a shot at it um it's a huge question and i want to say right off the bat i'm very much a student um, and an amateur. And I kind of look to Matt as somebody who is much more of a master gardener. And so everything I say, I'm I'm hoping Matt chimes in on. Um, Although to some extent, I think we're all beginners when it comes to the water and energy situation that we're in. So um, I guess just to frame that question, Elizabeth, I would say, there, there's kind of a downstream way of looking at it and an upstream way of looking at it. The downstream would be things like, you know, irrigation strategies and different forms of irrigation and water efficiency. And there, there's a whole thing there, obviously. Um, and I, my farmer friends are all well-versed and have taught me a lot about things like drip tape and, and, um, and so forth. and, that's so. There's there's kind of a, a nexus of issues around you know what happens around irrigation and related to that is plant selection. Um, and there's another question I know you're going to ask us about that later. But kind of on the far upstream thing, I'd, it's important I think to say that um, I think I think that we're not just growing food; we're growing soil, mm. and the role like of that. soil. Soil fertility uh, is huge when it comes to water um, intensity and water water cons- water conservation, um, and I think Mac could say much more about this. Um, the The book by John Jevons has a lot to say about organic matter in the soil and what a difference that makes in terms of uh, water consumption by by plants. <laughs> um, so and so, I, I would say that at the very beginning, it's about it's about the soil, um, and and that probably your best water strategy is to is to build good, healthy soil.
0: And how? What are like your top three tips to do that?
2: Well, um, this gets to the energy issue and and trying to use less in the way of uh, off farm inputs and imported fertility because um, that compost that you're buying by the truckload came from somewhere um and it was made with materials that were grown somewhere and chances are that organic matter was needed or could have been used wherever it was grown maybe maybe should have been returned to that soil
0: and not Um, shipped using fossil fuels to your yeah not to
2: mention the transportation the, the the huge machines that you need to make compost in quantity so um so i i mean i think making compost is hard and and I, I'm still learning how to do it after 15 years of trying just about every every method you could imagine. Um, I'm still using different methods, um, but I think so. I think compost is essential, but I think green manures and cover crops are, um, you know, probably essential, and they've certainly become essential for me. So, the grain crop that I planted last week actually began six months ago when i planted a cover crop in october that um, that was all about building that soil and getting it to the point where i could plant that grain in may Um, and there were a lot of steps along the way but that that's so there's um in a nutshell i think it's compost and cover cropping um and and just building up the the humus and organic matter in your soil Um, so I'm sure Matt would have a lot to say about yeah, that. Yeah,
0: Matt, I I want to ask you the same question. Do you make your own compost um where you're farming and are you Yeah. You know, there's also Paul mentioned manure which you can, you know, get some horse manure if you have neighbors with horses or get chickens and let them run free when you don't have something they want to eat in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. So um, I really appreciate a lot of what Paul said. I working for Ecology Action, my focus is on what's called the grow biointensive technique, um, which is written about quite well in John Jevon's book, How to Grow More Vegetables, which a classic. Yes. And
0: dog eared.
1: Yeah. And just dirty as heck.
0: (laughs) I mean, it ought (laughs) to be.
1: Yep. (laughs) Filthy read. Um,
0: Anyways, yeah, so
1: without going too much into um, everything that that's about, um, that's a different show probably, but just focusing on the water issue. um, I love what Paul was saying as he's talking about, well, bringing in compost and the cost of that, not just in terms of financial but energetic, um, the the carbon cost of that as we're burning fossil fuels. It's actually really hard to recoup that, uh, the amount of fuel it takes to haul and the amount of carbon put into the atmosphere, uh, it's hard to recoup that through growing plants in one season by growing carbon in your soils.
0: So you're saying, um, basically, you can't offset the carbon yeah, expended. Yeah. If you actually in, measure, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's uh, so you know the idea is we're thinking about things more holistically here. It's not just about saving water. We have to also, you know, the UN says we need to increase our yields as more people come onto the planet. And we need to do that without destroying all our ecosystems. For example, cutting down forests to graze cattle or graze soybeans or industrial agriculture or so forth. So we gotta look at ways to increase our yields while also saving water. We have to look at ways to build our soil while also saving water um, and decrease our footprint, um, which to me is actually one of the biggest things we can do. If I could produce more on a smaller amount of area Like Paul said, we're taking care of, we're growing soil. We're not just growing plants, right? We're watering soil. We're not just watering plants. We're watering that living, pulsating, breathing tissue that is soil. Um, And that is like a sponge cake performing all of the the miracles that allow plants to take root and grow. So um, thinking about that, if we have a smaller area where we're producing more food, right there, that's cutting back a lot of water use. And as Paul had mentioned, building organic matter, organic matter can hold anywhere from six to 18 times its weight in water. Wow. Depending on the quality of that organic matter. Right. So there's ways to build compost piles very specifically that increase certain types of humic structures that hold even more water. Do you- so if you looked at two farms side by side and one used compost and one didn't, you're going to see the one that used compost is more drought resistant.
0: Do you know the carrying capacity of like dead soil and water?
1: Well, it's such a spectrum, right? Sure. I mean, you have some soils that are just pure rock <laughs> and then you've <laughs> got like tropical soils and temperate soils and bogs and, and so many different things that people have figured out how to farm. Um, but in general, you know, the more organic matter you have, the more you, you take care of that soil. Um and the smaller your footprint, the less water you're going to need to grow your food.
0: I think we've all had the experience, certainly when you like have moved to a new piece of land or maybe it's sort of starting on a, an area that you haven't ever cultivated before, um, either after a rainstorm or after you start watering it, where it's just like… The puddles on top nothing is soaking in um to the soil and that's certainly an indicator that you have some work to do um so yeah i mean absolutely building your soil makes a lot of sense because the healthier your soil the more water it's going to retain the more Water your your plants will have access to. I myself don't make my own compost um, because I also Paul find it very tricky. Uh, what I do, I live in the Ukiah city limits, and I we put all of our you know scraps and yard waste into the green bin, and then that goes to the transfer station, and I think it goes to Cold Creek compost. Um, so when you talk about you know trucking compost, I certainly understand why you don't want to go long distances. But how do you feel about you know? If you can't build your own compost, probably better to get it from as local a source as possible. Or is that, are you even beyond that? It's okay to no, tell I, me I'm wrong.
2: I, yeah, no, I think you have to do it. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not a purist about this. I think you have, to, um, you have to do what you have to do. And especially at the beginning, um, I remember hearing about... Um, uh, the live power guy, Decatur, who started his farm uh, with with compost imported from somewhere else, and he said that that was sort of like an inoculant. I mean, that was kind of an essential thing just to get things going. Sure, jumpstart. But I think, but I think after that, um, you know, it's possible to do it with less. And and I mentioned green manures and cover cropping. Um, one other thing. I didn't mention that I think is um, really relevant to water conservation is mulching, which is- I was gonna ask
0: about that, thank you.
2: That I've been using um, and it has um, some trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. <laughs> uh, so if you if you mulch, you're creating a really nice environment for slugs and bugs um, and also voles. So I spent um, an hour yesterday afternoon building uh, vole traps. And if anybody wants to know how to build the bowl trap, there's an article in the um in an issue of um Growing for Market magazine maybe three months ago. Um and it's just a simple box to catch or catch bowls. But hmm. anyway, um that's just an example of um the unintended consequences of you do one thing and something else happens that you didn't expect. But um I've I've heard that mulch can reduce that a well-mulched garden bed might take 20% of the water um, that, a, that, that gardening without mulch. Um, I don't know, Matt, if you've heard that number, what what you would say, but it's a fraction. It's a, it's a fraction of the water you would otherwise consume.
0: Matt's nodding his head.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And there's, you know, one of the things we do in the biointensive approach is we try and create a living mulch by not having big rows um, between our our crops that we're growing, but um, instead planting them very close together. Um, And you can find more about that in how to grow more vegetables. Um, And it's part of a a larger system, which includes the way you prepare the soil. If you prepare the soil nice and deep and you give it good structure, you can actually plant things closer together. And you plant them close enough so that their leaves touch when they mature and it creates a living mulch on on the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a good balanced nutrition in your soil, uh, your plants actually transpire less. In other words, they're getting their nutrition through water. Uh, and if the if there's very poor nutrition in the soil, they're going to want more water to bring more nutrition to them. And so that ties back into um, organic matter and taking really good care of your soil. So um, there's so many ways to conserve water. Um, But, you know, these mulches, uh, these living mulches, building organic matter, um, having a good, balanced, healthy soil and uh, all these things, you know, when you add it all up, it can be significant when compared to industrial forms of agriculture, which just spray water into the air, have large spaces between row crops. It's really designed for a machine um, to operate. It's not really designed for, um, you know, intensive production on a sustainable uh, level
0: mm-hmm. i also want to mention with mulch it's very important that you choose a high quality mulch because i've certainly heard horror stories of people planting um or not planting you mulching with like hay for instance that has a bunch of seeds in it and then you're just planting weeds in your garden so i'm also i am team mulch um paul i i like to mulch but you got to be careful with the mulch you choose
2: well you do and um i mean i i i'm on a journey with mulch myself i for the exact reason that you mentioned elizabeth i would would for the last few years i would buy straw either wheat straw or rice straw that i thought was pretty clean and i i found an organic place to get it from um but that straw probably should have stayed as i said before probably should have stayed on the soil where it was grown and um so again coming back to farm generated fertility i think what my current strategy is to try to grow more of my own hay but then to give the hay to the chickens and let them pick the weed seeds out of it and let it decompose a little bit get some manure in there chicken manure and then i put uh what i would say semi decomposed straw as mulch so it's um it's a way of using my own um my own plant my own hay uh, without creating the huge weed problem that that you mentioned
0: I am going to take a minute to reintroduce us for folks who are just tuning in. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. My guests today are Paul Brumbaum and Matt Druno. They are uh, farmers slash you know larger scale gardeners or homestead farmers, if you will. And we are having a conversation about water scarcity and the um, you know realities of living in 2022 and beyond as we continue what is most likely long-term drought and the changing effects of climate change on our land and food so i will open up the lines if anybody wants to call and have a question for paul and matt 707-895-2448 give us a call if you want to chat um i wanted to ask so you mentioned matt that in biointensive you do what's called living mulch when the leaves are touching each other, there isn't as much opportunity for airflow, which I know is, can be like really nice conditions for non-beneficial insects. Um, so, you know, it's like Paul said, you do one thing and there's this consequence. You do another thing, there's this consequence. So what is the sort of biointensive way for dealing with decreased airflow and potential increase in, in pests?
1: Well, you know, the decrease in airflow actually is another way that you conserve water because you're having less evaporation. Um, you know, and so you're going to, what it kind of boils down to is just making sure you're watering correctly. So if you water correctly, for example, if I water overnight on the coast, that water is going to stay around all night long. It's going to sink nice and deep. Um, if I water in the, the, um, late morning, most of what I water is just going to evaporate off. So, the effect of that approach, not saying one is right or wrong, at some point one might be more right and one might the other might be more right for you. In the garden, we're kind of like magicians playing with the four elements and trying to find balance and, and understanding these influences that water brings. It cools, it moistens, right?
0: Garden so, alchemy. <laughs> Yeah, if you
1: water too much and, and, you know, you maintain a lot of moisture, you're going to end up with an imbalance, which leads to mold and rot and mildew and slugs and all those fun things. Um, so, it's just more of a, you know, for me, gardening on the coast in a very humid environment to begin with, which is so much different than gardening in Willits or Ukiah or the Valley. Um, you know, I water probably, if you average it out through the whole year, uh, four gallons per hundred square feet per day. Um, But that's also saying that for about six months out of the year, I'm not watering. Sure. So if you look at my peak season, I'm watering somewhere between 10 and 15 gallons of water per 100 square feet per day. And that peak season is usually like um, end of May uh, through, you know, maybe mid-August. And, you know, so... Throughout the year, I adjust how I water, when I water, how much I water, and it's really a, an art of observation that is fun. You know, you guys mentioned um, being amateur gardeners. Me too. Every day is am I'm, I'm a beginner, and the great joy of all this is learning to develop those organs of perception and um, understanding where we fit in with the garden and what's possible and um you know we could live our whole lives and feel like we've just scratched the surface um, yeah. understanding nature in the garden i
2: would just add to that understanding your soil type um, took me a long time to figure out with my clay soil that i was overwatering, um, and i think that's a real tendency especially here on the coast where you know in the summertime if we get a good fog season I might not need to do much watering at all for, you know, for quite a stretch of time. And that's really nice for me um, in, a, in a drought situation. Um, but um, understanding understanding your conditions and understanding your soil, I think, is essential.
0: So you are both coastal farmers. I'm going to call you farmers because I think that's what you are, even though you might refer to, um, especially Paul, to yourself as a gardener. Uh, it is the Farm and Garden Show, so all are welcome here. Um there is a, a, a I don't know if it's an irony but I guess it's it's a it's a bonus that on the coast you don't necessarily need to water as much in the in the summer because the coast has a real water problem in the summer. Um and there's you know we can build infrastructure, we can truck water over from inland which also has water issues, but that's not getting better. Um so I guess I'm just looking for your thoughts on what it's like to farm on the coast when, you know, th- there's so much tourism on the coast, which is important. And it's a, certainly an important part of our economy. Um, but when you know so much water is going toward tourism and less is probably going toward growing food, just what is it like to, to farm on the coast when water is being trucked over?
2: It's a weird feeling for sure. I mean, I, th- I think it's very situational. Um you know, it depends on your on your your own water source. I'm I'm fortunate to have a good well that's never gone dry, but I don't know how much water's down there. And I also know that I share that aquifer with neighbors, and um, so I'm very I'm very careful. I mean, that's that's why I do I do mulch. I'm I pay attention to you know the soil fertility and all all these other things. Um, you know, obviously, if you're in the town of Mendocino and you're you're in a high density area, I, you know. Trying to trying to grow food there is a whole different proposition than trying to do it where I'm at. Or I, I don't I don't know about you, Matt, what your situation is. But it's I think it's very local.
1: Yeah, we we're on a well also. But you know, coming back to that idea of micro scaling, and um, you know, if you if you were to set out to grow a large portion of your own food, and um, you learn some of the tricks that is written in how to grow more vegetables, not to overplug that, but um, without going into too much detail, that's where you can find all the tricks. Um, You know, you could grow a complete diet in one one hundredth of the area that a conventionally mechanized diet would be grown in. So what that looks like in terms of water use, I mentioned the 10 to 15 gallons of water per day. If we had, you know, 25 inches of rain or 30 inches of rain in a year, which is less than our traditional um, average, but um, we're approaching that this year, and I think we're probably done with rain for a little bit. But, um, you know, in a 150-square-foot tool shed uh, with proper storage capacity, that's all the water you need for the full year. With Like just if a you did
0: rain prop- catchment, you mean?
1: Yeah, rain catchment with an 8,000-gallon tank. And now that's a big tank, but it gives you some idea, or three 3,000-gallon 3, tanks. You know, if we could implement some programs here locally that make tanks more affordable, Or, if someone were to start a business making these tanks locally and having them cheap, or there's huge grants being made available for coastal resilience right now, maybe that come from the Coastal Commission, maybe some of those go towards making rainwater catchment cheaper for us all. So, rather, you know, regardless if you're in high density or low density, or you have a well or not, you can use that water you've stored off of your shed roof. And a lot of people say that, you know, the salmon need that water. And it's true, the salmon need the water, but we're not talking about like, city waters going into sewers being piped out to the ocean. We're talking about the water that literally fell on your tool shed, um, which is insignificant in the larger
0: um,
1: amount of water that is being taken from the salmon.
0: I read something recently about fog capture systems, and I think there's a couple of prototypes happening on the coast right now. Um, It sounds super cool. I don't know how feasible that is, but I'm just... That's sort of a random question because I just thought of it. But have either of you, you know, looked at these sort of fog to water catchment systems? I I,
2: I heard or I think I I read or scanned the same article and just remember thinking, wow, that's really cool. But these are all things I think we're going to have to look into and and figure out because we're we're in a new era here.
0: I mean, the redwoods do it. Why can't we?
2: Yeah, it makes (laughs) sense. I mean... (laughs) I, I don't know how much quantity you can you can generate that way, um, and it sounds like a lot of effort compared to maybe some other strategies. But but yeah, we should we should try to figure it out.
1: Yeah, and I think we need to build um, systems which have redundancy and different you know integrated components that um, give us more options. If we relied just on fog catchers and we had a year that there was no fog, you know, then we're in trouble. Then right? you're in trouble. And we've had, you know, a lot less fog in the last decade or so than we had uh, in the past.
0: We have a call. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Can you turn off so your radio?
3: Yes, I have. Thank you. Um, regarding the fog idea, which is a great idea, um, there are devices out there that people have developed in really arid places on the uh, you know, southern continent in uh, Africa. For doing that and done really great things for people but on the other hand what you're talking about and comparing us to the catching water like the redwoods I recently saw a documentary about a guy who had a near-death experience and since then he and his sons have devoted all sorts of resources and their lives to life. and in order to
0: oops sorry can you say that redwoods again you cut off they- they, they're dedicating their lives to what now you cut out
3: to to saving redwoods. Got it. And and they have all sorts of resources involved in in greenhouses where they're starting redwood babies and getting them going and stuff, but they've found that the kind of fog that they need in order to maintain their lives is now further north due to the climate changing and that they're up in Oregon putting them in the ground instead of in northern California.
0: Interesting.
3: And uh, I just had to throw that in because you are on that topic. And that's all I have to say. Thank you very much for the show.
0: Thanks for the call. I mean, we are certainly aware that species, both, you know, like insects and mammals and rodents and trees and plants are going to migrate and have, in fact, already started migrating um, due to climate change and you know, like the Joshua trees are one example of, you know, they are very threatened and can they move higher up? It's it's a lot of things moving higher up and that's going to impact our wine industry, certainly. Um, you know, who knows how long Pinot Noir, which we are so famous for in the Anderson Valley, is going to thrive in the Anderson Valley. So it's certainly something we all should be aware of, just this reality that species migration to survive and adapt to climate change is real and you know we have human climate r- refugees already um you know you could certainly argue that the residents of paradise are climate refugees at this point because there is ample evidence that that you know the the fire in paradise and lots of wildfires are um, exacerbated by by climate change
2: and this this gets right to one of your questions elizabeth about crops you know what what can we grow that responds best to you know, water conservation. Love
0: a good segue. Let's talk about it.
2: It's a huge question. And one of the questions I, I have more, way more questions than answers. I mean, about, about what I know is that squash takes more than tomatoes or potatoes. Um, and more I, water, I was hoping, you mean? I would, yes. I mean, that, that's kind of an obvious one. Um, but I was sort of hoping to pump Matt on this question because you know every time i go to the how to grow more vegetables and all those wonderful charts in the middle there the one chart the one column that i don't see which i wish was there was you know water intensity how much water does this crop take and i'm wondering is there does such a guide exist or where where can i find out like you know how much water is what i want to grow going to take
1: yeah what edition do you have of that book paul
0: pretty old yeah time to
1: upgrade Yeah, time to upgrade because the latest edition is called How to Grow More. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this wrong because it's so long, but it's something like How to Grow More Vegetables in Less Space Than You Dreamed Using Fewer Resources and Less Water Than You Can Imagine or something like that. <laughs> nice. so anyways, it's the longest book title in the world, but the latest edition has a chart in there and it shows the different crops in terms of their their water efficiency. Cool. Okay. And, you know, we look at it. From many different angles but um one way to look at it is the amount of calories per gallon Um, and calories has kind of gotten a bad name in our culture but um it's one of the basic it's our energy (laughs) so if we're not getting our calories it doesn't matter you know how many how many vitamin uh um, c pills we take uh we need our calories to get by so looking at calorically um You know, if you look at uh, you see a lot of farmers in the Midwest transitioning to sorghum versus flower corn and flower corn gives you about 15 calories per gallon of water. Um, Sorghum gives you 27 and it's more drought resistant. It's what's called a C4 crop, which means it uses water more efficiently in the process of photosynthesis. So we're going to see a switch to a lot of crops like that globally, um, crops that are more water efficient. Right now, markets really drive industrial agriculture, but from a subsistence perspective, a human nutrition perspective, um, you know, looking at things like how much of a certain nutrient or calorie um, can I get per gallon of water? So, you know, there's carrots, 7.5 calories per gallon of water. A hamburger, 0.4 calories per gallon of water. So also tying into this discussion of water use is our dietary choices. You know, if we're really concerned about how to use our resources most wisely in a time of drought, um, we might take a little dairy and meat out of our diets. Maybe not completely. For some of us, we might choose to do that completely. Um, But in terms of water efficiency and and resource use, um, you know, that's definitely part of it, what we choose to eat, what we choose to plant. Mm -hmm.
0: And it also matters where that hamburger came from. You know, if you have a small scale... Uh, you know dairy farmer or uh, cattle farmer or you know chicken farmer or whatever um you know most of the folks around here have a variety of animals um, I just got a lamb today from uh, headwaters from Ruthie King because uh, we are meat eaters in my family sorry people who are listening and are disappointed in me um but we do try to buy the meat that we eat locally and um you know that it does make a huge difference in terms of impact on the land you know locally raised sheep and goats And cows and chickens are, you know, pooping where they're where they're raised and enriching that soil. Yes,
2: and and back to to farm generated fertility. I think there's some really strong arguments to make for having animals on the land. Um, I mean, there's different philosophies about animals and eating animals, um, but as far as you know, growing food and soil, um, there's there's a there's a strong case to be made for having animals.
0: Regenerative agriculture, I think, is the preferred term. But you know, you also there's absolutely a balance because you got to be able to move animals through a pasture and then grow some some food or um, you know food either for you or for your animals on that pasture that they've just enriched with their manure. So. I think, you know, Paul, you, you didn't use this term, but I'm wondering if it feels accurate to you that you are striving for sort of like a closed loop system on your land. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, know, you really emphasize that you don't, you try not to use off farm inputs. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of sounds like a closed loop to me. Does that term resonate with you? And Matt, I'm wondering. if yeah, you feel the same. I think
2: that's a, I think I, I remember that term from permaculture, um, and I, I, I resonate with that, <clears throat> but I also want to make a caveat that what I'm trying to do here, I, I think there's a real question of scale, Elizabeth, because um, I'm not trying to grow for 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 the market. Um, I'm not a market garden. I'm not a I'm not a tractor farm here. I'm trying to grow food for myself and my family, and um, and that means that I can do things more intensively and also get by without machines in a in a way that um, many of your other guests who are growing for farmers market and you know all the people that need to eat in this county um cannot so um I I think scale is a huge issue when you're when you're talking about all of these questions. Yeah.
0: Thank you sure. for that. Um cuz you're absolutely right some people, you know, you gotta, you got to do the best you can. And the, for some people, that's using some machinery. Hey, we have a call. Hi, caller. You're live on the air.
4: Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I'm Jose, and uh, I'm just calling you. I, I like everything you guys talking about, uh, about the climate change. Thanks, Jose. And, and, and all those things. But you know what? If the climate change doesn't kill us, then there is some other problem we gotta fix, you know. Paying attention, or the white supremacist.
0: I'm not gonna argue with <laughs> they, you on that one. They they they, they might kill us if you know. We, we they have are killing us. We gotta fix. <laughs> Put
4: it on some someday, they, they, like they do in Buffalo, New York.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the call, Jose. I mean, well, you're not going to get any argument from me there. White supremacy no. is absolutely a problem and is
2: killing people. And we need to get more of those those white guys into gardens. That's the answer.
0: <laughs> gardens for everybody. I mean, that could be also an interesting segue to a question that I had for you, um, in terms of the role of social justice and equity, and you know what role that plays in farming in a you know climate changing world. Um, we know that it's you know. There is an uneven impact on low-income communities, black, brown, indigenous, and other, you know, people of color and their communities in terms of, you know, food scarcity and um, access. And they are often, you know, marginalized communities, bear the brunt of, you know, climate change impacts. So, Jose, I am with you 100%, and I'm curious what Paul and Matt's sort of take is on how from a local perspective, um, what role social justice and equity can and should play in, you know, our our adaptive farming practices? It's a big question. Huge
2: question. And I feel like I should defer to Matt, who's actually done something about this question. Um, I'm thinking now about community gardens. Um, but I know there's also conversations going on around um, land land trusts, um, just land access in general. Um, you know, when I'm able to do what I'm doing because my folks were in the right place at the right time, and land was way more affordable up here in the 60s and 70s. My dad was a minister. Ministers don't make a lot of money, but he was able to buy a couple acres of land on Navarro Ridge. You could never do that today. Um, so I think we, we've got to figure out Ways, and, and I think Matt has, has thought not just about community gardens, but also about um, creative ways to own land. Um, you know, equity sharing arrangements, and you know ways 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 to do it. Um, I mean, I think it can be done. Um, but um, I, I feel like I should defer to Matt and let him talk more about this question.
0: Yeah, I mean, just based on your, the little uh, one-liner you sent me, Matt, Victory Gardens for Peace Initiative, Gardens Core Program, Garden Friendly Community Resolution, those all sound like they have equity pieces. So what you, hit us. What you got?
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, one of the things that really kind of scares me about the future is so few of us know how to grow food anymore. And um, you know, 200 years ago, over 85% of our population knew how to grow at least a, a significant amount of their own food. Um, today, it's less than 1. So, you know, not only in terms of the equity and justice issues around that, even the folks who have resources don't even know how to use their resources to grow their food. So, we have this—we're facing this huge challenge that um, we're on the precipice of so much change. The, Ecological situations, the things that Jose brought up, the violence and white supremacy, the political, social, economic, environmental, climate change, all those things are confounding factors that cause every other problem to be exacerbated, like water or energy or social justice and all these things. So we know from studies that when you put your hands in the dirt, you get inoculated with a microbe that releases serotonin, which makes you happier. It improves cognition. Um, growing your own food improves health. Um, you know, the it's therapeutic. It it relieves PTSD. Um, it, it is the most res- if you do it correctly. It's the most local, resource conserving, efficient, productive way to grow food that we know. Of. It's what's always carried humanity forward through times of good and bad. Um, is that ultimate form of small, local food production in the backyard garden. So not everyone has these backyards. um, So we have to figure out how to free up resources. Um, And, you know, I did a study a few years ago looking at um, how many farmers we had in the community, how much farm product was produced. Um, I was surprised to find out that of everything that's produced in our community, only 2% stays local. The rest gets shipped That is
0: wild especially in such a small community like this with so many small farms. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, there's so many issues, but growing a garden accomplishes so much and it's something that we need to provide the resources for. So the garden friendly community resolution is something we develop that anyone can pass a community, a housing association, a university, a town, a state, a government, whatever, that declares the importance of local food production for the health Um, for climate change, um, for resource conservation, um, and just the the happiness and beauty of our communities. You pass that, and then all of a sudden you've got a vehicle that encourages, you've rallied everyone together, and you can start community gardens, which is what we've done in Fort Bragg.
0: Cool. I think it's also worth mentioning, we have a call, so sit tight, caller. Um, It's important... for all of the reasons you mentioned to grow food, it's also really important for our local food security. Um, I think we all saw during the pandemic how impactful it can be. And we're still experiencing, you know, food shortages. The co-op mentioned recently that they can't, you know, rely on trucks coming as frequently as they used to. So uh, local food security should not be ignored. And now I will take your call. Oops, sorry, I lost you. Got another one. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Um, what about, um,
4: gardeners donating a few uh, vegetable starts, vegetable green and herb starts to the food banks and food pantries? I'm going to try and do, I have a real minimal, totally off-grid garden, but, um, I'm going to try to do some extra flats and stuff for probably just herbs, you know, to make nice teas and for the food and add, you know, nice potent minerals and nutrition, but, starts for the food pantries and food banks so people can you know grow a little bit of their food The you know the most food poor people can get at least a a toe in the water
0: yeah absolutely that is a great suggestion thank you so much what do you think about that growing some extra starts and and donating them
1: yeah, what the heck? Why not? <laughs> we have a, a free community seed bank, too. If anyone wants any free seeds, um, you can go to VictoryGardensForPeace.com and go to the seed bank. Um, and then you, you click access. And then the password is all lowercase. It's save SaveSeeds! And we've got about a thousand different types of seeds that anyone can um, access we'll mail them to you for free. We do take donations to cover postage but um, if you can't afford it, the, the goal is just to get you guys seeds and um, facilitate seed sharing and, and growing not just for food but also creating um, a seed source that's adaptable locally av- available and um, free to everybody. Cool yeah,
2: I, I like I like the caller's suggestion because it, it it leads to I think one of your other questions, Elizabeth, which is how do people get started? and you know it can be how,
0: daunting if you've never grown your own food
2: it, it is and it's you know like matt said it's only you know a small tiny fraction of the population that knows anything about this and for the rest of them food comes from supermarkets <laughs> or money which is you know how crazy things have gotten so i i think it's important for people to start small start where they are um do what is possible um and do and do what works i think there's nothing like a little success because let's face it growing food i think can be really challenging as well as rewarding and you know i i mean i just went out to my garden this afternoon and the voles have taken out my tomatoes and i've got cabbage maggots in my broccoli and um, you know, there's always going to be something that you're up against, but um, start small, start with things that work. And um, I think it's always good to plant flowers because that way, um, you know, even if the gopher eats your, eats your tomato, you got something nice to look at.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we have another call. Hi, caller. You are live on the air. Can you turn your radio
4: off? Yeah, hi. Hi. Yeah, I just turned it off. Um, yeah, I wanted to mention something um, on the topic of food security. Enjoying your show, by the way. Thank um, you. Anyway, I was part of a uh, transition Ukiah Valley back oh eight or ten years ago, and um, it's a transition town. Anyway, we showed a lot of films, and one of them was called "The Power of Community," and it was about. I'm going to read the. It's like three sentences, but it's it's about the. Um, Cuba, what happened when the when the Soviet Union collapsed, and obviously Cuba was very dependent on on the Soviet Union. Any anyway, here's the here's the little blurb. The movie again is called The Power of Community. When the Soviet Union collapsed in nineteen ninety, Cuba's, Cuba's economy went into a tailspin. With imports of oil cut by more than half and food by eighty percent, people were desperate. This film tells of the hardships and struggles as well as the community. And creativity of the Cuban people during this difficult time. So, you know, they basically had to go organic because they couldn't, they couldn't import, um, uh, you know, other fertilizers and and such. So, anyway, an interesting film. People may want to check it out.
0: Cool. Can you say the name one more time? A lot of it is is
4: about, is about working. the, The title of it again is The Power of Community. And a lot of it is about working together to farm together cooperatively cool so anyway an interesting an interesting movie
0: absolutely thanks for the call sure i think it's interesting too what the previous caller said about uh first of all that movie sounds interesting and cuba is an interesting example of what happens when um you know you get isolated almost overnight from the rest of the world and have to make do with what you got um The previous caller, though, and speaking to Paul's point about start small in a way where you can have some success, there is nothing easier to grow than herbs and pots in your kitchen. I mean, truly, just grow some herbs and pots. And I love that she is specifically growing herb starts to donate to food banks because you don't have to plant those in the garden. You can keep them right on your windowsill and put those into your food, and you're getting nutrients, you're getting flavor. So, yeah, I'm into it. Grow herbs. If you can't grow anything else, if you have a black thumb, start with herbs we have another call we're going to try and squeeze you in and hi caller in you are live on the air hi um i had a couple things to bring up quickly First, i'm up yeah. here in brook Trail, uh-huh. and
4: um basically i've done trial and error great successes great failures and i um, with fruit trees berries and everything is there any way i can get a hold of like a master gardener or anything that's like coming through that could just i like, check out my garden situation and give me some tips so I quit wasting money and time.
0: So there is um, an active Master Gardeners of Mendocino County chapter. Um, so if you just Google Master Gardeners of Mendocino County, um, it will okay. give you an email address, and you can reach out to them directly. I know they, they like I said, they have, it's a very active chapter. Okay, awesome. Cool, thank you.
4: And also, is there any programs for, like, people setting up, like, on their porches and everything? Just, like, I just last heard talking about, like, growing herbs in kitchens, but getting people started with like just tomato plants or lettuce on their porches especially if they're elderly helping people out like any sort of community service mm. is to help people actually get started on a very small scale on their porch
0: oh that's which an interesting could be
4: inspiring to
0: move further on it's an interesting thought i don't know we'll 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 talk about your answer off air thanks for the call okay thank you very much do you guys know if there's any program like that in, in mendocino to me that's just kind of like you can put it on Facebook if you're looking for for starts or pots or whatever and, you know, just checking in on your neighbors, see if they want to grow some food. But I don't know about an organized program like that.
1: Yeah, I think there's no shortage of local garden um, experts. I don't want to say experts because everyone's a beginner, um, but uh, who know a lot to help you get started. So look, you know, look up in your area um, what's going on when you go to the co-op, look on the board and see who's offering gardening classes that sort of thing, and I also want to say, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Embrace your mistakes because that's how we learn. Um, an expert <laughs> is someone who's just made more mistakes. So absolutely, um, embrace those things.
0: Hey, this show has flown by. I'm so sorry to cut this conversation off, um, but we gotta go. So thank you, Paul Brumbum and Matt Druno, for joining us today.